Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. Let's face it, in order for a tech ecosystem to thrive, you need people who are not only successful entrepreneurs, but you also need people who know how to pay it forward for the next generation. For the 22nd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Andy Palmer, who is currently the CEO and co-founder of Tamer in Cambridge. Andy is the definition of what it means to pay it forward. A successful serial entrepreneur in his own right, he is also a very active angel investor with close to 60 of his own investments, plus being an LP in other local funds and mentoring lots of founders along the way. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like how rugby relates to startups. Both Andy and I played, so we chat about that. The details behind Vertica, a very successful company that was acquired by HP, why you shouldn't raise capital in the early days of your company, the common mistakes entrepreneurs make when pitching an idea, and a lot more. Okay, quick side note, do you follow us on Twitter? If you don't, it's obviously a great way to stay up to date on all the amazing things going on in the tech scene and all the great content from VentureFizz. So our handle is simply at VentureFizz. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Andy. Andy, thanks for joining us. Keith, great to be here. Well, I like to talk about different topics to kind of kick things off. It's my new format. It's been working well. Uh, you love rugby. Let's talk yeah. about rugby. How did you get involved with rugby? Well, I started playing rugby in college, and uh, it quickly became uh, more like a lifestyle than anything else. And, sure. I uh, played a lot of rugby over a long period of time. But um, one of the things that's amazing about rugby is that unlike uh, uh, American football, uh, when you play rugby or on the field, um, the players are the ones that make all the decisions uh, and the coaches kind of sit up in the stands with with all the fans. And uh, as we got into business, like uh, in work and doing startups, kind of the same thing. In startups, you can't really move fast unless you have lots of people that can make decisions every single day on the ground. And so I've always thought there's this uh, similarity between, you know, rugby and the independence of the decision making of the players on the field and what startup people have to do in early stage companies. I never thought of that. So I um, played football in high school and, and played a little bit in college then realized I didn't really have the the stature for college football. So I transferred over to rugby mm. and uh, I was a wing. So mm. it was on the edge, right? Awesome. But it was such a, a fun sport. And I just thought it was so like competitive and grueling. And, but I never thought about that team element where you're on the field together and you got to make decisions. Yeah, uh, it really, and it is, you know, I, I really think rugby is one of the best team sports in the world. Um, you know, on any given day, um, any rugby team can, can beat another rugby team if they've got the right attitude and, uh, the right commitment. And so I like to think the same thing about business and startups that um, when you get into these startups, uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why any given company uh, is not going to succeed or win. Um, you know, the classic comparison is to the big monolith companies, right? Well, if uh, in, in software, if uh, what, what makes you think, you know, that you can beat Oracle or Microsoft or IBM or Google, but um, on any given day, uh, if uh, the people in a startup are really motivated and really committed, um, they can actually uh, compete head to head with some of these, uh, some of the largest companies in the world. And even has some of the same terminology, Scrum, right? <laughs> That's right, Scrum, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, let's go way back. So where did you All grow right. up and kind of the foundation years before uh, Bowdoin? Uh, I grew up in uh, Barrington, Illinois, um, you know, it was a small suburb out, outside of Chicago and um I was a, a, 
a computer nerd from early on. The first time I touched a keyboard, I fell in love and uh, had a lot of fun as, as a kid writing uh, small programs for, you know, for people and uh, figured out I could make some money and use that money to buy more computers. And so um, uh, I loved also video games. And so, you know, for me, you know, I learned how to code writing, writing video games. And like basic or? Yeah, C yeah. Or? I was a Mac guy way back in the, you know, or sorry, was that your before first Mac, and Apple II was my first Apple computer. II. Okay. And, uh, yeah, basic. And then, uh, as I got older, Pascal, and then, uh, eventually in college, uh, Lisp, man. Yeah. So you were studying computer science early on. I mean, obviously there's, more of a prominence of computer science education in schools, but uh, that was early on, right? Yeah, and I got really lucky. I had a really great uh, computer science uh, teacher in my high school uh, who was who was really fantastic. And then as an undergraduate at Bowdoin College up in Maine, we had a tiny computer science department, but a really great um, uh, professor, this guy Ken Silvestro, who was a student of uh, Marvin Minsky uh, here at MIT. And uh, so I got really lucky. I got to work with Ken and Marvin and do some really cool AI stuff. Um, this is back in the, the mid to late 80s. Wow. Kind of got me hooked on working on really cool CS stuff. Yeah. And, and how'd you end up at Bowdoin up in Maine? Uh, I just fell in love with Maine. I always liked the outdoors. And as a kid from Chicago, you know, I, you know, Bowdoin, you've got the, the ocean and the mountains right there. And it was, it was a tremendous amount of fun. I just, I love the outdoors. And then obviously that transferred over to getting your uh, MBA at, at Tuck and yeah. at Dartmouth and Hanover. Yeah, Tuck is like the Bowdoin of business schools. It's tiny, it's very small, very intimate. And I love Bowdoin so much that Tuck was like a, an extra two years up in the woods, you yeah. know, and uh, and had a lot of fun too. I, I, uh, I right after Bowdoin, I was kind of doing programming to support my habit playing rugby. And uh, then eventually I got hurt and I couldn't play rugby anymore. So um, I decided to get serious about my career and back for an MBA. And uh, Tuck was a natural place to do that. And then that's when you kind of started your career and at, you ended up at Trilogy? Yeah. Uh, so so coming out of uh, Bowdoin uh, – or sorry, coming out of Tuck, I had to decide what I was going to do uh, afterwards. And, you know, a lot of these MBAs, they go into investment banking and consulting. But for me, I really loved uh, software and uh, tech. And so this is in the early 90s. And uh, I had a great professor, this guy Phil Anderson at, at, at Tuck who really encouraged me to go into a smaller uh, state-of-the-art uh, software startup company. And um, I did that, and I, I kind of never looked back. Um, I also uh, – the Trilogy was was an AI company, really. They weren't talking about it like that because AI wasn't in vogue back in the early 90s. But um, at the core of that company was, was a bunch of uh, hardcore AI people. And so for me, that kind of harkened back to my undergrad days and uh, – uh, we had a lot of fun at Trilogy. It was a really great company. And Joe Lemont, who is the CEO and founder, was an amazing, amazing guy to work for. I learned a lot from Joe. Well, I remember Trilogy just when I so when I started my career in recruiting, it was '98. Oh, yeah. So it was right when Trilogy was this like poster child of a successful <laughs> company, yeah. hiring amazing people. And if my memory is correct. It was in Austin. Yeah, Austin, Texas. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and my wife and I actually still have a place down there. We spent a lot of time in Austin, and. Um, uh, we one of the things that was amazing about Trilogy was we had this this mantra that that Joe and John Price came up with was only the best, right? So they really did recruit like the best talent from universities all over the world, and uh, the quality of the people and the the resulting alumni network at Trilogy is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, some of the best people in the world. Yeah, it'd be fun to look at. Mm. 
But from uh, from Trilogy, what did you do after that? We did a spin-out from Trilogy called PCOrder.com, which mm-hmm. is one of the early uh, e-commerce vendors. And we uh, we grew that up from scratch and then uh, took that public during the height of the boom. And it's what people today would call a unicorn, ran up to a billion and a half market cap. And uh, right around that time is when I left Austin. My wife and I left Austin and moved back up here to, uh, uh, to New England uh, to be closer to, to family. And then that's Bow Street, right? Which yeah. another company I remember well in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Yeah, exactly. And it was a lot of fun. And where Trilogy and PC Order had both been sort of bootstrapped, very capital efficient. Um, I wanted to know what it was like to do a, a kind of a classic venture back company. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bow Street was definitely that. We raised a bunch of money from great venture capitalists and uh, spent a lot of money uh, as well. And uh, uh, but it was really good, uh, great experience. And, and there was the, that was the first chance. Where I could, uh, I got to work directly with Frank Moss, uh, who's been a mentor of mine for many, many years. And uh, uh, Frank was an amazing influence on my career. Um, learned most of what I know from him. And what was Bow Street doing? It was, was it middleware or something? Uh, it was actually what people today think of as, as uh, web services. Yeah. Uh, and it was really an early, uh, the early days of web services and the, the semantic web, as it became to be called, mm-hmm. um, mostly around XML uh, at the time. And so uh, way, way ahead of its time in a whole bunch of ways. Um, but uh, it, it was a great company and sort of as many of these venture-backed companies do, it sort of, you know, uh, ramped really fast and then sort of flared out. That'd be another fun company to look at as far as alumni and where people mm-hmm. have gone because that was another just great company that scaled and hired great people. Yeah, lots of lots of great you know folks in the Bow Street network. Yeah. So what was after Bow Street? Uh, you know, at the end of the at the end of the nineties, Frank Moss uh, really and I we, we we both had this feeling like we built a lot of software, sold a lot of software, made a bunch of money, but how's the world any better or different? And so we started to get interested in uh, things that had a larger uh, kind of double bottom line, you know, kind of a larger social purpose and started networking in Cambridge and got to know some folks in the life sciences, specifically uh, Eric Lander uh, and Stuart Schreiber. And Eric and Stuart were doing two projects, uh, one of which became what's now known as the Broad Institute. And the other project was a spin out of some of Stuart's chemistry from Harvard, uh, called Diversity Oriented Synthesis. And he was turning that into a cancer drug discovery company that became Infinity Pharmaceuticals. And so Frank and I sort of naturally uh, sort of attached to Infinity and uh, uh, we locked in and, and just started helping, you know, build the build the company out. So that's how you made the segue into life sciences. It is. And, and I really credit uh, uh, Steve Holtzman, who is the uh, founder and one of the founders and the CEO at, at, at Infinity. He sponsored me. I was just a tech guy, you know, interested in, uh, you know, the life sciences. And Steve did an incredible job of actually just bringing me into the fold and helping me learn everything I needed to learn in order to, to be dangerous in the life sciences. And uh, it was an incredible experience. Uh, another key sort of theme, uh, Infinity, we we really hired some amazing people. We had a great team, uh, you know, from uh, Jeff Tong uh, to Julian Adams to Adeline Perkins. I mean, it, it was an amazing team to work with. Truly one of the best. And along your career, like where did you gravitate towards? Was it more towards, you know, sales or business development, market, like product management? Because you started out writing code, right? Early yeah, on in your that's career. Right. But that's as right. you worked your way up 
the executive ladder. Yeah. So if I trace it back, it kind of started, I started as a software engineer and then I sort of morphed into a tech savvy business person and kind of a, a, with a strong sales orientation. But I always thought of my technical skills and my technical knowledge as kind of an unfair advantage. Um, you know, I wasn't just a salesperson. Um, and then, uh, and then the interest in the life science kind of, uh, brought me back towards building software rather than, than selling it. Um, and, uh, and that was a lot of fun. And so I really, after, after infinity, I really stayed sort of more on the, the technical side a bit more and I can sell when I have to, but, um, I really prefer working on the, the technical side of the equation. Got it. Okay. And then after Infinity, it was uh, Vertica. Yeah, so so I was really lucky at, at, to um, my friend Joe Tango, uh, who's at Kefa Partners now. He's at Highland at the time. Uh, introduced me to my partner now, uh, Mike Stonebreaker, and uh, we were at some, one of these venture boondoggles uh, down at the Greenbrier Resort in uh, middle of nowhere, and um, and our actually Mike and I, our wives met. And uh, independently of he and I meeting, and they both came back to each one of us and they said, you know, we, we, I, met, I met this person and you have to start a company with, with this guy because uh, we get along really well. And so we want to hang out. So you guys have to do a startup. So maybe, maybe wow. six or nine months after that, you know, Vertica was born. Yeah. And Dr. Michael Stonebreaker, yeah, right? Like that's he right. is like world renowned database technology creator like i'm probably not giving him credit but like, <laughs> like, like but he basically has created like these re- relational databases like what he's like the yeah so so mike's mike's uh, he's a luminary yeah and even mike's an amazing guy he you know starting in the late 70s and early 80s uh, mike was a kind of a founding father of the database industry and he was uh he started a company called ingress that was larry ellison's first competitor to at oracle um and, uh, and then eventually uh, did a whole bunch of projects, and uh, most notably is a database system called Postgres, um, which is a project that he started. It was Post Ingress, mm-hmm. and um, but Mike has always operated at the intersection of academic computer science and commercial projects, and and truly very very uniquely uh, been able to straddle uh, both the academic and the commercial side. And he's been a fantastic partner for me. We've worked on five companies together. Uh, in some way, shape, or form over the last 15 years. And um, uh, he's truly an amazing dude. And one of the things I appreciate about Mike is that uh, a lot of people think of him as an academic computer scientist, but um, Mike knows as much, if not more, about business than than, than most people uh, in startups. And so, uh, you know, I trust his instincts very deeply, not only on the technical side, but also in, on the business side. Well, let's talk about Vertica because it was a very large success story here in Boston. Hmm. Uh, so the two of you come together and he obviously must have some technology that things can be commercialized. So walk me through the process of, you know, getting together, building a company, and then obviously it yeah. was acquired by HP, right? Yeah. So so Mike uh, and there was a, a core group of, of academic researchers um, uh, that were all working on a project that was called uh, C-Store. It's for Column Store. And it was a column. The idea was to build a column-oriented database. Most database systems are row-oriented uh, by design. And so um, there had been other column-oriented databases actually going all the way back into the 60s. But 
Mike kind of had this idea, uh, along with the, the the other folks on the research team, uh, to build a modern columnar database. And it was right after uh, Jitsaxena had started Netiza. It was kind of proving that people in the database industry, in the database world commercially, wanted high-performance, read-oriented database systems. And so uh, our value prop to our customers was very similar to Netiza, but we were doing it on uh, shared nothing, uh, 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 open hardware, as opposed to at Netiza, they were selling an, a hardware appliance. And so um, we had kind of watched JIT be successful at Netiza, and uh, you know we felt like there was a really good uh, potential for for a new company. Now, how do you get early adopter customers for a technology like that? Like, how do you start to build out and define what the market's going to be? Then, obviously, pricing and you know building a yeah. company, hiring. You know, you know, it's incredible. Uh, I, I think of it as you know, agile is maybe the best sort of way to describe it. Mm-hmm. That the best uh, startups, when they work, they they're kind of scrappy, and and so you may look at a, at, at a, a company that Vertica became and think, oh, well, they must have had a plan for all this at the very beginning. Quite the opposite. You know, we had some instincts about things that we thought were right. And we knew that there was a lot of demand for high performance data warehousing systems. But all of the things that go into acquiring those first customers, uh, getting the first uh, fundraising, you know, under your belt, all these things uh, are, are really, really challenging to do. And that first customer, I think, in some ways is is 10 times harder than acquiring the, you know, the first 100 customers. Um, because if you've got nothing and there's nobody else to validate, like you've got to some, find someone that's really w- willing to take a risk on you. And so uh, – uh, it's it's a really as much of an art uh, as as anything else, and I, I think that's why uh, f- very few people are successful at it, or lots of people fail, is because uh, it's fun to think about starting a company, but the actual doing of it uh, is much much more difficult. And obviously, you built a company that was successful to the point where HP acquired. Yeah, it. yeah. I'm always fascinated too by uh, an acquisition. Like, how do how do those conversations begin? Is it like a partnership that leads down the path to saying, "Why don't we just acquire this company?" Or well, we had a, it, it, at Vertica. We had uh, a series of, I think it was at least three offers to buy the company at various stages, and uh, at every stage, the offers went up significantly. And, uh, finally the offers got, you know, high enough that, you know, the, the, the shareholders decided it was the right thing to do. Um, I think there's another path that Vertica could have gone down, which is, I think it could have been an independent company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think this is one of the challenges that we have here in Boston is that, uh, the, the entrepreneurs and the, 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 uh, and the venture investors are a little bit too prone to sell out early. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'd, I'd really like you go, you think about it, companies like Microsoft or, Oracle, these institutions that have been created on the West Coast, and the idea of, of Bill Gates or, or Larry Ellison selling their company to someone else, it's almost like ridiculous to, to consider. Um, and I think we need a little bit more of that kind of chutzpah here in, in Boston. We need some entrepreneurs that are that are going to really build independent companies themselves. And I'm, I'm really hopeful. Uh, look at guys like Langley Steinert. I'm a huge fan of his. And I think he's built an amazing company at, at, at CarGurus. And I, I really hope they stay independent in the long haul. Yeah, agreed. And I think we've been fortunate to see a kind of like a next wave of serial entrepreneurs. So on our podcast, we interviewed Izzy Aziri and Dan mm-hmm. Belcher with Mabel. Totally. So they did Stack Driver, acquired yeah. by Google in like 24 months or whatever. The Yeah. So, you know, they had their, um, you know, whatever exit 
you know, whatever level it was, but it was acquired by Google, but now they're doing their second one. So I think Boston's going to benefit from some of these serial entrepreneurs that are now probably more prone to take the home run risk because they've already had their own, like, you know, success story under their belt. I think that's right. And, you know, I think that um, that's the the goal in the ecosystem is to get enough people that have made enough money when they're young that they continue to take these these risks and uh, and start swinging for the fences a bit. Uh, try and build something that's big and independent and is the kind of business that then goes out and buys other businesses. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Um, so at, from uh, Vertica, once you made the transition, you went yeah. back into life sciences at Novartis, right? I, I did, yeah. I, I kind of felt like at Infinity, we had been able to build some really cool new systems and do some great stuff, but I didn't really get to exercise some of that at large scale. And so I wanted to see what it was like to work in a large biopharmaceutical company. And I had a, a really good friend, this guy, Ramey Avard, who uh, was uh, uh, had just taken over as the chief information officer over at, at, at Novartis' research group. And it was really a, a great opportunity to work inside of a large company, which I had never done before, um, and to work as a part of a mission-driven organization. Uh, this is true both at Infinity and at Novartis. They were, you know, all these thousands of scientists that come into work every day and their their mission is to discover important new medicines that make a difference in the lives of patients and it's a very powerful mission to get behind and um, and I loved it I you know I, I, I all my friends were kind of taking uh, bets on how quickly I would you know get kicked out of Novartis or <laughs> leave and uh, well the you structure know. is different than what you were used to so. oh yeah it was radically different but um but but the the team at, at Novartis they were kind of looking for for somebody to shake things up a little bit and so my job was to kind of you know kind of run around and and break stuff and and so I did a lot of that and that that made it fun uh, and also the scale of it, like when we did things that really worked, um, you, you're impacting, you know, tens of thousands of people um, and users inside of these big companies. And when those users are people that are discovering drugs and you have a big impact on their productivity, that's very, uh, very rewarding. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward to what you're up to today. Yeah. Cool. So uh, founder, CEO of Tamer. Yeah. So what is Tamer? So Tamer uh, is a, uh, a system that uh, enables very large companies to unify their data. And so most very large companies have lots and lots of silos of data, mostly tabular data. Um, and uh, a lot of that data is generated as an exhaust from their business process automation systems. And uh, But when they go to analyze the data, they need to see a unified view across all that data. And Tamer uses machine learning to unify that data very efficiently and effectively. And um, it's a project that Mike uh, uh, and and some of his colleagues started at, at MIT. Uh, the original project was called Data Tamer. Um, and then we did the cliche thing of dropping the vowel and buying the domain. Um, and ah. So that's how we got the name. <laughs> got it. Great. So what, let's talk about the, the company today, like how many employees? And- yeah. So we have about 85 people and we have offices uh, primarily here in Harvard Square in Cambridge, but also uh, out in Soma in San Francisco and a small office in, in London. And uh, most of our customers are Global 2000 companies. Our biggest customer is General Electric. And um, uh, other great customers uh, like uh, Toyota and Novartis is a great customer, as well as GSK. And uh, we, we really work with these large, large companies to help them do a much better job of engineering their data so it can be used for uh, analytics. 
what would be like a, a good example of like a use case of a company? Like we don't have to talk specifics about, you know, the company yeah. you just mentioned, but you know, just to kind of bring it down to a yeah. use case. So the, the GE is a great reference and they talk publicly about the work we did with them. So when we first started working with GE, they were trying to answer a really simple question, which is, are we getting the best terms every time we buy anything across all of GE? And you'd think that's a, an easy question to answer, but it's really hard because they actually have more than 400 different procurement systems across GE. Wow. And so bringing the data together from all these different procurement systems, uh, rationalizing all the suppliers and unifying all the supplier data, and then then uh, anytime anybody goes to buy something, let's say somebody's in uh, Brazil and they're going to buy a two centimeter brush ball bearing and they're going to pay a dollar a piece, they're going to buy 10,000 of them. Uh, it's really helpful for that person to know that there's actually somebody in Germany that buys 10 million of those, you know, those bearings every year and they get them for less than five cents a piece. Mm-hmm. And so using Tamer to unify the data actually creates these spend optimization opportunities so that uh, GE can actually save money on the direct spend uh, that they do. The first project we did with them uh, over the, the the first period was about three months. We helped them save more than $80 million uh, wow. just in that one project. Wow. So when the ROI thing comes up, it's like, well, yeah, we kind of... No brainer. No brainer. Yeah. yeah. Got it. And I think it's kind of that way. You know, like I mean, a lot of people have been building software for big enterprises for many uh, decades. And most of these big companies, they have most of the software they need. Um, when I was at Novartis and running all the software and data engineering inside of research, uh, we had uh, most of the software that we needed. Um, well, the real sort of challenge now is how can these big companies use the data that they've got? And they need a little bit of software, but they also just need some data engineering practice. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to say oftentimes our, our goal at Tamer is to help large companies build their data engineering muscle and manage their data as an asset. And once you help uh, show them that they can uh, start to save money and or grow faster using their own data. It's a very, very powerful thing. You've uh, been a serial entrepreneur and involved in many startups. How is it different building a company you know, today hmm. versus before? Well, uh, specifically a software company and lots of you know, uh, you know, differences between software companies and biotech or something. But um, in software, it's incredibly uh, uh, capital efficient. You can get started uh, next to nothing. Here, here at Tamer, all of our build, test, and release infrastructure for our software runs on uh, the cloud, specifically on uh, Google Cloud Platform on GCP. And, um, uh, you know, we don't have any of that physical infrastructure that's required. It's very elastic as we scale up our testing. We can add lots and thousands of new machines and then we give them back uh, when we're done with them. And so the actual cost of kind of getting a business going is very, very low. And the same is true even of your general systems. When you look at uh, uh, tools like Namely and all the the, the uh, Google Apps infrastructure, um, it's very inexpensive to get a company up and running. And um, and so you can you can go out and raise a lot of money, but you get to use that money that you raise from venture capitalists for different things um, to hire uh, even better engineers and to get to market faster and all that kind of stuff. What keeps you awake at night? Uh, well, you know, when, when, when you go out at, at, at Tamer, we've raised, uh, you know, almost $50 million now. And so whenever you raise that much money, you have very high expectations. Mm-hmm. And so Tamer uh, has... 
a lot of things that we need to do really quickly in order to to meet those expectations. And uh, the the biggest bottlenecks oftentimes are human uh, in nature, whether it's uh, the humans that are uh, buying software uh, and they're, you know, that's usually a pretty slow and expensive process in, in large corporations. Or as we're doing projects inside of these companies, sometimes their behavior around their data and how they manage their data and think about their data um, needs to change in order to leverage that data as an asset. And so many of our projects, the, the human bits are the hardest part of it. Um, the, the technology is interesting and fun. And as a software engineer, I love the, the tech. Um, but the, the bottlenecks for us are almost always the human bits. Got it. Yeah. So why do you keep doing this? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, my wife asks that all the time. Um, you, you know, I, I love it. I love building software. I feel like I get paid to, to play with computers all day. And uh, uh, like I said earlier, the moment I touched a keyboard as a kid, I fell in love. And so the idea that um, I get to play with computers and, and it also sort of employs a bunch of people and we get to, you know, uh, buy more computers and do all kinds of cool stuff like that's It's just fun for me um, every day. I, I never really wanted to do anything other than, uh, than software in my life. So, um, so it's a lot of fun. So not only are you a founder, serial entrepreneur, but you're also an investor. Mm, yeah. So how did you get into angel investing and tell us more about what you're doing in that? Yeah, I started, you know, maybe, uh, you know, uh, 15 or 20 years ago, we started uh, doing some angel investing, my wife and I, and it sort of evolved into what we call now Coa Labs, which is like our seed fund. And um, uh, it's it's worked out really well. It's been a lot of fun. It's a way for me to uh, uh, participate and support a lot of my colleagues and my friends and especially young entrepreneurs. Um, at COA, our criteria for investing were um, we were primarily focused on uh, first-time entrepreneurs, so people who hadn't started companies before, who were technical. Um, 75% of the entrepreneurs we backed were women. And um, we really uh, uh, tried to focus on, on investing in companies that are in Cambridge, um, kind of in our local community. Although uh, uh, maybe half of the companies in our portfolio ended up being in Cambridge, quarter in New York and a quarter out in California. So uh, we, we really, for us, it was a passion for these young entrepreneurs that really inspired us to get started. And uh, we kind of thought as the money that we were investing is um, kind of flushing it down the toilet um, because <laughs> most of these seed funds are a disaster, yeah. right? Um, and so, but we're really pleased now, you know, the, 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 the funds that we've invested uh, uh, have been returned uh, many, many times over. And uh, that was pretty exciting. We put about $10 million of our own money to work in these companies. So that was pretty good. And, and there's still a tremendous amount of upside. So many great companies in our portfolio. If you look at companies like uh, uh, PillPack or um, Upstart or Recorded Future, uh, they're really amazing businesses with, with incredible entrepreneurs. Yeah, no, it's uh, such a great – like I was going through your uh, AngelList profile and saw mm. – so there's like – 40 at least I ended up to... being like closer to 60. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. so they're not all listed, but yeah. there's impressive companies on there that oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago of that, you know, expanding the ecosystem. So what's also great about what's happening in Boston these days is you've got successful entrepreneurs investing back into the ecosystem to build other companies, investing in first time founders that are having a hard time raising their first round of capital. Yeah, yeah. Steve Papa. Steve's a great example. You know, like, Steve, Steve's my role model, you know, like yeah. I, you know, um, and I, have, 
Yeah, Toaster. I, you know, like so many great companies here in Boston. And, and increasingly, the other, you know, other folks like Jitsexina is another great example or mm-hmm. Dash. Um, there's so many great entrepreneurs here in Boston and, and a bunch of folks that are investing back into the ecosystem. Jim Baum's another great example. Yeah, um, yeah right. Exactly. And, and so I, you know, it's really, it's a great ecosystem to be a part of. And one of the things I love about it is that it's such a small community. Like we actually care about each other quite a bit. Um, that, you know, there's lots of different ways to be successful, but I think one of the things that differentiates the Boston e- startup ecosystem is uh, a lot of us really care about how we're successful, um, that it's not enough to, to just make a ton of dough or, or uh, you know, get, have, have your company go public, but um, how you build the company and the values that are behind it actually matter. What advice would you give to a first-time founder that is looking to raise capital? Uh, don't. <laughs> uh, it's really in my portfolio. Maybe half of the companies in my portfolio are were bootstrapped in some way, shape, or form. And um, so bootstrap at first, get it to a point, yeah. And then yeah, it, gas it, on the fire type of money. Yeah, well, there's this thing that you know. And again, I think Langley Steiner is a great example where if you raise less money in the in the early days and you focus more of your time, energy, and attention on your customers, uh, that's just a better use of time. And one of the things that I see happening in these larger startup ecosystems is the early, young entrepreneurs, they get distracted by the fundraising and they think that the fundraising is an end in and of itself. And it really isn't. Um, you know, if you do go out and you raise a bunch of money, then they're just going to want you to go back and do great things with customers. And so why not just start with the customers and focus on them and build a great business? And if you do a good job of that, there'll be plenty of money that'll come your way. There's a lot of capital in, in, in the ecosystems for, uh, for great early stage companies. But, um, but fundraising is a distraction and maybe one of the reasons why, you know, I continue to do it here. And there's some, sometimes companies need a lot of capital and in biotech, for example, like you can't really start those companies without a lot of physical infrastructure. But, um, but in software, you need a lot less and, um, you know, you need to hire some really great people and, but the, the amount of capital that's required is much lower. So I, I really encourage people to be capital efficient and, um, and be very careful about how much time they spend with, uh, with early stage investors. Well, the times that you have met with, uh, founders that were pitching you an idea, what are the common mistakes they would make? Um, I think there's one of the, you know, very consistent things is that, their their pitches tend to uh, be what they think people want to hear as opposed to what they actually believe. Uh, and so I, I'm really, you know, philosophical about this, that early stage uh, companies and in in the, the first time founders especially should really focus on what inspires them and the, the thing that they're trying to build and the customers that are going to buy it. And uh, if they get those things right, lots and lots of other stuff kind of falls out. And um, so, again, these and, and there's there's a bit of this that goes on in some of these incubators where um, people get so hyped up and prepped for the big pitch day, a big demo day that they think that that's then ended in and of itself when um, really the best pitches are the ones that, you know, really are just a reflection and a description of the great work you're doing on the ground with your customers and your users. And so, um, so it's a tough discipline, though. It's easy for people to get sucked into the, uh, uh, the hubris of fundraising. Yeah, I think um, at least some of the companies that I've seen that have scaled to success, there's always been that attachment element of why they started the company, mm. not just because 
they were sitting there with a whiteboard figuring out, we need to disrupt something, right? Yeah. Like PillPack's a perfect example where, yeah. you know, TJ's family is, you know, pharmacy for yeah. years. He knew the business right. and entered yeah. a, you know, a, an industry that is highly regulated and you had to go state by state to get approval to like brutal, s- brutal. Yeah. Brutal. And you know, like mission driven companies, Randy Komisar, I think was the first person I heard. Uh, he's a Kleiner Perkins talk a lot about mission driven founders and mission driven entrepreneurs. And I, I think TJ and Elliot are perfect example of mission driven folks. Like, um, you know, uh, their, their mission is to, to reinvent pharmacy and, you know, they're well on their way to actually doing that. And, uh, uh, the companies that I really, you know, would sort of back were, were those where you had these fiercely mission driven entrepreneurs, almost my wife would definitely say like, I couldn't resist, uh, somebody that was, was completely mission driven. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that's that's a key measure of success. And it kind of goes back to this thing where, um, you know, if your goal is to just make money, lots of easier ways to make money than starting companies from scratch. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, if you're not uh, driven by the mission, then like kind of what's the point? It's really freaking hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you still stay active in the rugby circles, whether it's just spectator or... I do, yeah. I was watching rugby just yesterday uh, down at Brown. And uh, my club here in Boston, I'm very proud of them. They just got a new field down on the South Shore. Uh, that's really cool. And I'm still close to all the guys I played rugby with in college and, and, and afterwards. So, yeah, very active. Now I just I, – I can only go and watch, though. I, uh, I only get to, to watch the guys play. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's the but way. I still – the best – one of the best things about rugby, it's a, it's a great community. And uh, back to this kind of how rugby relates to uh, startups and software um, or in business – and that, you know, in rugby, you've got this community of people that are connected together and uh, they play hard on the field and then they go and, you know, have a drink up afterwards. And uh, because in startups, you're really, especially in mission-driven startups, uh, you know, you're all working on the same stuff every day. There's a really strong element to it that goes way beyond the formality of business. And it's like, you know, you're, it's a community of great people doing mission-driven work. Yeah, that's a great analogy too. That I never thought of. So you compete on the field, and it's like grueling, mm-hmm. and then afterwards you all get together and have a drink up. Yeah, and in and, and startup land, it's like this added benefit if you you know you you go and get social is that uh, the people that uh, you're hanging out with having beers at the company that you're competing with uh, could be your next employees. <laughs> yeah, you know, here in, in our office here in in. Uh, uh, Harvard Square, right across the street, are the the Kencho folks, yep. and so you know they a uh, lot of great you know talented software engineers, and uh, we always welcome folks from Kencho over here to have beers with us, and maybe <laughs> even decide they want to uh, go to another startup. Well, might be time. They yeah, just were acquired. So exactly, that's awesome. Well, Andy, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing all your words of wisdom here. I mean, we could probably go on for another three hours here, but uh, that was very helpful. So thanks again. Oh, thanks for having me, and thanks for all the the great work you guys do. I'm a big fan. Thanks again. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.